Hey everybody, today I'm here with Montana from uh, Power Your Thoughts. Do you want to tell me a little bit more about your account, what you do? Yeah, uh, thanks so much uh, for like setting this all up. Um, so my name is Montana, um, Power Your Thoughts. I really, uh, my page is just to provide people with uh, education and inspirational content regarding, you know, the mind, mental health, mm -hmm. uh, mental illness, all of that. Um, I'm a graduate student myself, uh, studying to be a psychotherapist. Um, and so really what I wanted to do with this page was to share with the community what I'm learning um, in school, what I've learned in my own experience, some of the strategies I've learned to manage mental health or to manage other things. Because um, I know it's helped me um, in my life. And so I just kind of want to mm -hmm. give out the same guidance and strategies that I've been learning and just to, you know, be a part of that community. I've always wanted to be a part of it. Um, so just really just with a quick disclaimer, uh, everything that we're going to talk about today is for educational purposes. Um, it doesn't replace professional help. Um, the things that we're going to talk about today are based on personal experience. It's based on the research that we've done. Um, it's based on uh, academic experience. Um, and so just to be aware of that um, when you're listening to what we're talking about today. That's all. For sure. And there's always when you're talking about a subject, when things aren't one on one, it's it's different. So you can take what applies to you, leave what kind of doesn't apply to you. Um, this is for educational purposes and what we share in common with both of our accounts. So today we're talking about safety and coping behaviors. Um, do you want to explain a little bit about what those are? So what are safety behaviors or coping behaviors is kind of a more general way to put it with in terms of anxiety. My understanding of it is it's that it's just a way for people to cope with their anxiety in certain situations. It's different for everybody. Uh, ways to uh, kind of get through a situation that might be anxiety provoking for you. Um, and, and they provide you safety. That's kind of what their, their name is, really. I kind of just wanted to just add on that, that safety behaviors are kind of a way to prevent a feared event from happening. Um, whatever that may be for the person. Um, and so we kind of think that if I do X, Y, and Z, then my feared event won't come true, whatever that may be for you. And, and so there's also a difference between the safety behaviors and then what avoidance behaviors are. Uh, very, they sound very similar, but there are differences. Um, with safety behaviors, or actually, let me start with avoidance behaviors. Avoidance behaviors are when... Um, you completely avoid a situation or you don't engage in a certain um, something uh, due to your fear of, of a feared event coming true. Whereas with safety behaviors, you're, they're subtle forms of avoidance. Yeah. You're still maybe going into a situation or you're still maybe doing something um, but you have either a trusted friend with you, you either have a certain item or object with you. There's certain criteria that need to be met for you to do blank. Yeah, for does, sure. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I think just today's video is important because not only are we just had a description of what safety behaviors are and coping behaviors um, from Montana, but we're also going to be kind of learning how we can identify what our own safety behaviors are and then different things that we can do to overcome them. Um, so we were talking before and then there was an example that we wanted to kind of discuss and that was 
why doing the same thing, but for different reasons and kind of distinguishing how something is a safety behavior and why it might be a safety behavior for somebody, but not for another person, even though they're doing the same action. Um, so you brought up the example of Sarah and Jane. Did you want to talk about that one a little bit? Just off the top of my head, I thought that, you know, let's say both Sarah and Jane are riding the bus, are they going to work or they're going somewhere, um, and both are listening to music mm -hmm. on like their, their headphones or, or something or a podcast or, you know, anything like that. And so let's say, for example, Sarah is listening to music because she wants to pass the time, she enjoys it, and, you know, whatever she's listening to, she just wants to pass the time as she's going on her way. Um, you know, and if somebody were to say hi or to, she saw someone she knew, wouldn't really bother her. So there's, there's that. Then you have Jane, who's also maybe listening to music, watching a podcast, watching a show, you know, whatever it may be. Um, but the reason she's doing that is because she doesn't want to, let's say, for example, talk to somebody um, make eye contact with somebody. She kind of wants to blend in a little bit more. She doesn't want to be, you know, the center of attention. She's more fearful um, of having to socialize in this particular example. And so when you compare Jane and uh, Sarah, they're doing the same activity, but they're doing it for different reasons. And so for, I think I said Sarah was the second one who's listening because she's fearful. So in her case, she would be engaging in like a safety behavior. Yeah. It's just, it's, um, I don't want to use the word normal or like use that kind of terminology. She's just doing it for different reasons, if that makes sense. It does. And I think that's why we came up with this topic in the first place, because me and Montana, we were having a discussion and we were honestly, we don't recommend this doing online quizzes, but we were just like, I wonder what we are doing. And then that's when I was thinking at work, I Sometimes I have social anxiety where I actually, I started a new job as a dental assistant and I felt like I was having trouble going into the different rooms. Like everybody works out of a different room and talking mm -hmm. to the girls. And I felt like I couldn't do that without holding my water bottle with me. And at first this was completely subconscious, but then mm -hmm. I mean, when I wouldn't have that water bottle, I felt very uncomfortable in that situation. Like I felt like I just didn't really have a place in the room. And then I was anxious with that. And so we were talking about that a little bit more because in another person's situation, then maybe they would just have a water bottle because they're drinking their water bottle. They're just holding it. They forgot to put it down. But in my case, I'm relying on that water bottle, even if it's subconscious, not subconscious, whatever, I'm relying on that to help me socialize with people. Um, mm -hmm. So do you want to discuss a little bit about kind of the problem with that and how this will reinforce your anxiety and how it won't really help you to overcome your anxiety? Mm -hmm, absolutely. Um, I think one thing I had a thought just before we go into that is if you're reflecting on that now, what are kind of the thoughts that go through your head when you're, if you don't have the water bottle, do you think? I mean, as soon as I noticed, I kind of nipped it in the butt and I was like, not even like I left my water bottle in the hallway, but before yeah. that was something that was actually really, really hard to get over. Like mm -hmm. in the moment, I think I was like, yeah, I know this isn't helping me, but because there's that temporary relief, I was like, I just want to, I just want to feel that relief. Like I just, I'm not in the mood to feel anxiety, for example. Um, well, I guess not an example, but I just felt like if I'm already struggling going and talking to the girls that are in those rooms, I just felt like it made it easier for me. So I wasn't really focusing on the long term that it's not really benefiting me that much. Maybe in the beginning, it was helping me to talk to those girls. So in the beginning, I felt like it was helpful just because 
it helped me to even go in the room in the first place. But then eventually I'm never going to feel comfortable in those rooms if I'm not holding my water bottle. And there's where the problem is, right? Yeah. Uh, What I think reflecting on it in that moment, I just was looking for that temporary relief Mm -hmm. instead of long-term. Am I like, how am I going to help myself to feel comfortable socializing without that? So it's kind of like a safety blanket in the same sense. Absolutely. And it sounds to me like, like you said, you're not, sometimes you're not aware of the little things that you do, um, which just really emphasizes the importance of being mindful of, you know, your thoughts, your feelings, your behavior, because see, then when you started to think about why am I holding the water bottle? Why do I need You started to realize, oh, okay, this is maybe why I needed it oh, maybe this is why it's not actually working for me. Let's now maybe think mm-hmm. about how can I change that? And see, so you went from like point A to point B to point yeah, C. For sure. Because you were being more mindful about it, right? Yeah. So it's interesting. I just feel like mm-hmm. reflecting back on it, I was socially, like I felt like when I mean I didn't feel like I had a place in the room, I felt very, mm-hmm. very hyper aware of the way that I was standing or the way that people were looking at me. So I felt like when I was holding my water bottle, then I wasn't like struggling to figure out how am I going to stand? Am I going to cross my arms? Am I going to like hold them like this? So I just yeah. felt like it kind of took the attention off of my body language that I felt like everybody else would be hyper aware to. Like I felt like my body language was being awkward. And so mm-hmm that was the temporary relief I had because I didn't really have to challenge that anxiety um, if I had the water bottle with me. Right, right. And then it just kind of became like a habit for you. Uh, for sure. For most people, I bet too, depending on what it may be for them. Yeah, at first, I think it was really helpful just because, but that's only the first couple of times. I felt like it was helpful because it helped me to get the bigger goal. But after a while, it's a very unnecessary habit and it's preventing me from challenging my anxiety and having a full expanded comfort zone of being able to socialize however I want in my office. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think it also helps that, um, that you're, you're able, again, like I said, you're able to be aware of that um, Mm -hmm. and that you want something to change um, because you're noticing that it's not working for you in some sort of capacity. Um, And so I, I guess just for me personally, I always think it's such a, a big step for the person to realize okay, what I'm doing is not working for me. Let me see how I can change it. Or what am I doing? That's not, you know, I feel like that's the first step towards uh, positive change really is be mindful and aware of thinking and why you're thinking or doing something. Um, My own little take on that. Self-awareness. You're right. It's so important. And I feel like it's the difference between a lot of success with expanding and having a growth mindset. Um, if you're not as self-aware of the things that you need to work on, how are you supposed to grow on those things? Right. Um, and we actually, we wrote down a lot of different examples with this. Um, we talked about general anxiety. We talked about health anxiety, which is more formally called illness, anxiety disorder, um, social anxiety too. And social anxiety. That's a big one. It's a popular one. So we're going to look at, uh, just a few examples and then we're going to kind of, Montana's going to explain the psychology behind some of this and just kind of pick it apart why someone might do that. So mm-hmm. we made a list here, if you're hearing paper. Um, so these are some examples for social anxiety. Um, so keeping the focus off of yourself. So you want the focus on other people. Um, So a lot of people, they might rehearse or plan what they're going to say. And I know when I first started my job as a dental assistant, I definitely did this. 
like like oh yeah that would that would be okay like especially if it was like awkward or I didn't click with somebody I'm like this is something I could say and then it's just kind of forced and not good Mm -hmm. um staying quiet in social situations um a lot of times people might have thoughts and then they'll just choose to stay quiet and it's it's kind of like that moment where you're like about to speak and then your heart kind of starts pounding and you're like no never mind like it's not worth it um we already discussed this one, but wearing headphones on public transport. So that would be a safety behavior because um, you can't completely avoid the situation, but you're doing it to make yourself feel more comfortable. And so wearing the headphones could be for a numerous amount of reasons. It could be so that people don't talk to you. It could be so that you feel like the attention isn't on yourself. It could be for whatever reason you have behind that. It's whatever helps you get through a situation in the most general terms. Um, We put alcohol and drugs on here. So say you're at a party, for example, Um, you might want to drink, but you might have anxiety that you're going to say something embarrassing in front of somebody or something like that. So you're going to avoid drinking in front of people so that you don't do that, even if you're still in the situation. Another thing is you might also drink more to kind of loosen relax you so it could be either it could be either or really yeah on the person this one is one that I do limiting eye contact even in my therapy sessions I see a psychotherapist sometimes it'll be like 45 minutes straight I'm just staring eyes darted out the floor so Mm -hmm. even when you have your anxiety under control there's still things that you can definitely it's like that doesn't affect my life that much but at the same time I'm not challenging it and I'm probably not getting my full benefit of my appointments because I'm doing that so that would be a goal that I could set to work on when I am holding eye contact and challenging that it's the same thing as I was talking about before you want that temporary relief like well I don't care about the future like right now I'm feeling uncomfortable I just want to escape that so you just you look at the floor and I felt like eye contact, like, I'm like, how long do I give eye contact for? Like, which eye do I look at? Like, do I look away? And then I was was stressed out about that. And I'm like, I don't want to deal with this. I have bigger problems. And then I would just not. And then that's when it becomes a negative habit for me because that's prohibiting me from having a full social situation. In my my therapy appointments, I'm not making eye contact with my psychotherapist. Mm -hmm. And one could argue that it it limits your ability to connect to that person, whether it's your therapist or your partner or even just a friend, a loved one, whoever it may be, right? I just think also, like in addition to that, in any social situation, if you're feeling uncomfortable, you're not going to be experiencing a full amount of like enjoyment with that, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. Yeah. So if there's any part of that where you feel like every single time somebody talks to you that you have to perform a safety behavior, then expanding your comfort zone by challenging those safety behaviors is going to make you feel a lot happier in the future. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And we're going to talk about that, how, how you might be able to accomplish yeah. how to get out of your comfort zone. We're going to talk about that in a okay. little bit. So with these, the social anxiety, um, those were a lot of safety behaviors with social anxiety. A lot of safety behaviors revolve around taking the attention off of you Mm-hmm. as well as kind of like a hypervigilance that people are like watching your body language. Like you don't know how to stand. You don't know how to talk. You don't know how to like louder. Like, do I talk like quieter? Mm-hmm. A lot of things revolve around that. Um, one that I know that I did for so many years is going into a grocery store. Now, actually, I feel like this, it's not good that this is happening, but wearing a mask. I love wearing a mask because if I feel like I'm covered up kind of incognito well, right now, it's good. <laughs> yeah. So after I'm going to feel uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
but that's not good because that means that I can't go into a store and feel comfortable just shopping. I feel like I have to like put myself in a little corner of the room and just have nobody see me. And so it's the same thing when I used to have anxiety about my appearance. Um, I'd wear baggier clothes kind of I'd like just so that I feel uncomfortable with that. Mm-hmm. Now I'm a lot happier because I don't do that, which is the point that I was trying to make. Yeah. So a lot of it is like, if you have anxiety about your appearance, sometimes you'll wear a hat so that people won't be able to fully kind of see your appearance or you'll be able to minimize how much attention is on you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or you'll wear certain colors, you'll wear dark colors. You don't want to stand out, yeah. sunglasses. Um, something, uh, other thoughts that I had, at least just for the social anxiety, if you're a student or if you're a graduate student yeah. or even if you're, um, you know, in the middle of a work meeting, let's say. Um, other examples of safety behaviors may be sitting at the back of the room, uh, not participating, not raising your hand. Uh, that was me. Answer. Yeah, that was the same for me when I was in university. Um, I'm guilty of that, yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to think of what else it could be. Uh, yeah, the clothes of wearing darker clothes so you don't stand out. Even, even one I just thought off the top of my head was pretending like you're writing or pretending you're oh. occupied by something so that nobody is going to call on you. Because I always remember like in elementary school when the teachers would call on you because because you weren't participating. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, pretending like you're busy so that no one would bother you. Those are Actually, other when I was in high school, I remember I switched classes. Mm. I didn't tell the teacher this was the reason why, but I switched classes because every single class she like targeted me. And if she oh. saw that I was like dazed out or something like that, she'd be like, what's the answer? And I'm like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. Like, yeah, put you on the spot. Yeah, I'm like, I'm panicking. Like, give me a second. I actually like completely switched classes just so that I wouldn't have to challenge that. Mm. Um, I wouldn't do that now. <laughs> no. Um, and another example is dinner parties. We've talked about this one before, but I remember with my family reunions, like Christmas or something, there'd be like 50 people there. Um, and I didn't like people watching me. I just, whenever I'd walk, I felt like I was walking in an uncomfortable way and I didn't want people to look at me. So I remember like if there's everyone in the living room, I would find my place. I would plant myself there. And I felt like I couldn't get up and walk across the room because people would like watch me. Mm. And so I would just find my place. And then especially like, I just felt like I couldn't walk in front of people. So when I was in school, I would wait until I was the last one. I didn't make it obvious, but I would wait until I was the last one in the class to kind of walk out so that nobody would look at me and in the moment like that's something you definitely want to challenge because you want to be able to feel comfortable in your surroundings to not do that exactly a lot of weight that you don't even sometimes realize you have on you Mm -hmm. and just one last note with the dinner parties thing cooking in the kitchen it's the same thing we were talking about before where you can be doing the same action as somebody but for totally different reasons Mm -hmm. so I used to volunteer to clean up in the kitchen all the time um, the person next to me might just be trying to be helpful. But for me, I just felt like I didn't have a place. And if I was doing a specific task, then it was like, or it was more organized. Like I didn't have to worry about like, is this person going to come up to me? For example, you know what I mean? I'm having yeah. a hard time describing it, but I would no, always I be the one helping. You mean, it sounds like it, um, it, that particular behavior, it gave you a bit more certainty because mm-hmm. you knew that at least I was doing this and yeah. someone was going to come up and talk to me or someone wasn't going to do blank. And so it really, it comes down to that fear of uh, uncertainty kind of, and not knowing what to expect, mm-hmm. um, which kind of explains why some people might engage like planning on what they're going to say or planning on what they're going to wear, like just yeah. knowing what to expect. And just something else in terms of not wanting to like picking, piggybacking off your note of uh, not wanting to, uh, what's the word? 
like stand up and your family members watching you walk yeah. across the room. Um, something I can think of is if you're, again, if you're a student or if you're uh, in a work meeting or whatever and you're late, let's say. Oh, no. If you have social mm -hmm. anxiety or anything like that, all eyes are going to go on you if you're late or if, like you're the yeah. one person coming in. Um, and so, you know, other things. So to prevent that, some people might be super early or some people might just avoid the class or their meeting altogether. Like those could also perhaps be categorized um, within the realm of, of safety or coping behaviors. Now that we're talking about it, it's like, wow, I didn't even realize that was a safety behavior. When I was in high school, like I had a very inconsistent track of going, like my attendance, just because that's when my anxiety was at its worst. Mm -hmm. If I was late, I, there's one time I literally, I stood outside the hallway for five minutes. Like, do I even go in? Do I not go in? And yeah. that's a lot. You don't even realize it in the moment, but that's, that's a lot. It is. And then you think back on it and you're like, why did I do that? Like, wow, that, that took a lot of time just to contemplate that. Yeah. So <laughs> now that we kind of talked about some of the things that are safety papers with social anxiety, we also have planned, how can we identify it? What are some questions you can ask yourself that will be helpful in managing that? Mm -hmm, absolutely. The first one that comes to mind is like, if, um, you know, like if you were like, ask yourself, how anxious would I be if I didn't do blank or if I didn't yeah. do um, you know, other things is if you feel anxious in a social situation, what do you tend to do to make yourself feel less anxious? If mm -hmm. you are having trouble tolerating uncertainty in a particular situation or yeah. conversation, what do you do? What do you think that then reduces that anxiety, makes you feel better? Um, and just to kind of put a note out there, to know what feels anxious, it could be thoughts, it could be physical sensations for you. Mm -hmm. um, it's very unique to everybody. So it's really about, like we were talking about before, self-reflection, right? You're yeah. reflecting on in this moment, what do I do? And also another thing, I just had the thought of, if I don't do this, what do I think is going to happen? Or what do I, what do I fear is going to happen? That's true. And you mentioned before, just kind of like an underestimation of your coping abilities with that. Exactly. Um, to do an example of how you could apply those questions, if you take the situation we were just talking about where, as in the kitchen at my dinner party, if you're in that situation, a good way to identify, you can start asking those questions. Am I doing this because I'm trying to avoid something? Like, is there an anxious feeling with it? Or am I doing this because I have a purpose to be doing it? Um, mm -hmm. I think purpose is a big intent because a lot of times you can just try and convince yourself that you are doing it for a purpose. If you're in denial about it, for example, you might say to yourself, no, like I'm just trying to help everyone in the kitchen. But if you're really working on that self-awareness, um, it's okay to be doing these things. And that's why we're doing this video in the first place is because we all do these things. Um, even if you don't have an anxiety disorder, you the likely chances that you have safety behaviors that are kind of holding you back a little bit. And so if you're washing those dishes and you say to yourself, um, am I trying to avoid something by doing this? Uh, what am I kind of trying to avoid? Um, then that's a good way of identifying if you're performing a safety behavior or not. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And another one that just came to mind um, that may be more like generalized anxiety is reassurance yeah. seeking. Um, it could be reassurance seeking, like asking loved ones, you know, can you look at this email or can you look at, you know, something and give me your thoughts about it? Kind of reinforce that I, you know, I did this correctly or I'm doing it right. Um, you know, other things could be like, if you're a student or you're, you know, you have something for work, did I do this presentation correctly enough? Did I do this design 
you know, yeah. for whatever it may be. Um, so if you're asking people, you need that reassurance, that's another type of um, safety behavior because it makes you feel better that, you know, I, I did whatever I need to do adequately. Um, so that's actually a really interesting one to bring up because I talk about so much on my account reassurance. It's also, it's applied to health anxiety, right? Um, reinsurance reinforces your anxiety. So it's another thing. It's, you get that temporary relief from it. So you, it kind of convinces you that it makes you feel better, but long-term it doesn't. So I remember with my health anxiety, when I would, um, let me just look at the examples here. Um, or I could just think of one too. So -hmm. with my health anxiety and reassurance, I would talk about at least, at least 50,000 times in an hour, I would say to somebody, are you sure I'm going to be okay? You sure I'm going to be okay? First of all, they, they don't really know that, right? Yeah. Uh, They're just saying that to make you feel better. Um, And second of all, the more that I asked for reassurance, the more that I relied on it and relied less on my own challenging skills, uh, the different questions I was supposed to be asking myself, letting myself sit with an intrusive thought. So the more that I asked for reassurance, the more that I needed it and needed it and needed it. And Mm -hmm. the more that, yeah, the more reassurance that I needed. So it was really kind of a negative cycle that I was going through because it felt like it was making me feel better. But the more that I asked for it, it's the worse and the worse and worse and worse it was making me feel just for that temporary bit of relief. Or just the more persistent. And if anything, it might've just, it just kept everything going, perpetuating that pattern, Mm -hmm. um, which then it becomes a habit and you be, you don't really think about it. Right. And that's it why does, you, yeah. these behaviors that we've been um, listing, it's like, Oh, I didn't even consider myself mm-hmm. holding a water bottle or, you know, reassurance yeah. of that stuff. Right. So you're right. Even if you have not been formally diagnosed with an anxiety disorder, there's a lot of these examples that we're yeah. listing you could be engaging in. Um, and I think a biggest thing is if it's causing you distress to a certain degree, that's when you really need to start thinking about whether it's benefiting you or not. Um, I think that's a big piece. That's important to mention because I mean, labeling is all just semantics in the end. Labeling is important, but if you're kind of focused on more, is this categorized as this, or is this categorized as this rather than how is this making me feel? How is this prohibiting my growth? Um, it's more important to focus on a situation than saying, is this a safety behavior or is it not more Mm -hmm. just take a specific situation and say, how is this preventing me from expanding my comfort zone? How is this kind of negatively impacting my mental health? Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Okay. So, so far we've been talking or listing a lot of examples of safety behaviors within social anxiety. We've done a little bit about um, anxiety, about your physical appearance, Um, a little bit of generalized anxiety with the reassurance seeking, that sort of thing. So now that we're going to move on to health anxiety, um, maybe what are some specific examples, um, some personal examples? Um, I have a list here. Um, Just what I have here is that individuals, and you can correct me or not, um, individuals stay away from certain situations that are associated with feared illness or illnesses. So that could be medical staff, it could be a clinics, it could be a hospital, um, things like that. Um, also things that might um, arouse them because if you have like some um, concerns about your physical symptoms of what that means for you, you'll avoid situations where you feel aroused or you feel yes. fearful or anxious, that sort of thing. Um, so those are kind of the ones that I can think of. Did you want to add to this list? Um, yeah, I think a big thing with people with health anxiety is all or nothing thinking it's black or white It everything with health anxiety. It's hard to imagine when you don't kind of experience that kind of anxiety, but it feels like life or death. So a big thing 
with health anxiety is driving anxiety. And Mm -hmm. uh, kind of the safety behavior behind that is I stopped driving completely, which is an avoidance. But when I started driving again, um, this wasn't really rational, but I would wear a scarf. I just felt like if I got in like an accident or something like that, like that was going to kind of help me to, you know, be okay. Mm-hmm. And this was super inconvenient. I mean, some of the times it was summertime for one, but yeah. I wasn't at first, this helped me to even step foot in the car. So it did help me. And I'm not going to deny that, mm-hmm. but eventually it's like, you can't go driving without that scarf because you're just, you're not at your full comfort zone with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just for one, it's really inconvenient. And for two, it's just a big distressor in your life that challenging it, you need to start challenging it so that you feel better. Um, another thing you mentioned was kind of an avoidance of illness. Um, that was a big thing. I remember when I was going through my health anxiety a lot, I bought a book on it. I forgot what it's called. Mm -hmm. It's actually, it's all over my account, but it talked a lot about kind of reassurance seeking. And it talked about that avoidance of your triggers. And Mm -hmm. that's a different conversation about triggers and what you do with that and when you should avoid them when you shouldn't. But Mm -hmm. I definitely found that when I read this book, it said, it was about a psychotherapist and it was talking to a person and they were using one specific example. We'll call him Johnny, where Johnny was afraid of having a heart attack and he avoided everything to the point where he stopped going to work. He stopped doing everything. And then they asked him, uh, what's the end goal with this? Like, don't you want to be able to watch TV shows? Like his favorite show was mm-hmm. house, which was a health show. Um, yeah. He says, yeah, but I mean, if that upsets me so much, why should I be watching it? Like he's avoiding that. And that's something that I think I did a lot too. Um, I wouldn't, Grey's Anatomy used to be my favorite show and I used to not watch that. I would avoid it. I would skip through anything that had health in any show completely. But now I'm at the point where I can watch Grey's Anatomy wherever. So it affected me then, but it doesn't affect me in the same sense now. Um, Just because I kind of identified what was the behavior there. It was avoiding the medical show. And then I challenged it, even though it was uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So you challenged your thoughts is what it sounds yes. like. You and it took a long time to kind of separate my anxiety from the situation. But mm-hmm. I think that's a big piece in safety behaviors, separating your anxiety from the actual reality that's around you. The ways that you could identify this stuff is yeah. some things that I've done, put out on my page or that I've learned. Um, yeah. Of course, journaling. Every, everyone knows what journaling is or reflections. Yeah. Um, even doing what's called a thought record. Um, and so if you think of a fear situation, you think about what your thoughts are in that moment, what are the physical sensations you're feeling yes. and what are the behaviors that you're also doing? Um, and all that is trying to do is to try to pinpoint, you know, those three components that I just said, and to kind of put it together and think about how are they connected? How is it that I'm thinking this and this causes me or leads me to do this? And then that's, if you can identify the pattern is the first step. So then, then after you can change that pattern. Um, so other things, like we said, besides asking yourself those questions, so you could journaling, uh, thought records, which you could find examples, worksheets online, just basic ones. Um, uh, I think that's, that's, those are the ones that come off the top. That's of actually something that's interesting. You brought that up. When I was going through my health anxiety, I did a lot of thought records. My mm-hmm. psychotherapist shoved thought records down my throat <laughs> until I was like an expert. <laughs> And they were beneficial at first. I was like, oh, whatever. Like, I know what I'm afraid of. Why am I writing it down? But that's something I talk about on my account a lot because pointing out the patterns, even in my recent posts, pointing out the patterns of your anxiety and how it works helps you to learn how to manage it, helps you to learn how to control it. And it also, it 
kind of reduces your belief in whatever you're afraid of. So mm-hmm. for example, with my health anxiety, I just made a post about it. Um, I was afraid I had Parkinson's for so long. I went through the loop. It was painful. It was painful. Say next month, I'm worried about having cancer, for example. Uh, mm-hmm. The different questions that I would ask myself with that to kind of help myself have some self-awareness, challenge my thoughts a little bit. Number one, it would be, how are you feeling with this? What's the thought? Kind of isolate the fear with this. And how does this make you feel? And then number two, it was, have you had thoughts about this before? Have you had thoughts in this category, thoughts that are similar, stuff like that? And then the next question, which is, it's usually always yes, because a lot of people, they have themes like with my health, Mm -hmm. It's, it's different content, but it's all about health. Right. And the third one would be, if you've had that thought, then what makes this one different? What makes this one more likely to be true? Is it because it feels more emotional for you? And the fourth one, it would be kind of force yourself to look back to how that thought felt. Because sometimes when you are in, so if I'm thinking about having Parkinson's, for example, um, then I am totally fearful. It feels completely real. It feels like my entire life is, it just feels really real to me. But then Mm -hmm. when I'm moving on to my next anxiety loop, the Parkinson's one, I suddenly gain logic because I'm not focusing on it and I'm focusing on something else. So when you bring yourself back to that moment and you go, how did, how did that one make me feel? Did it feel just as real as this one? And then you're just kind of pointing out the patterns of how your anxiety works, um, how it switches between loops. And you're like, well, if that one wasn't true, is this one really true either? And then you just, you're kind of learning how to cope with that. And it lessened my belief in my health anxiety with that. Right. So it sounds like you're like you're looking at it, um, at least the Parkinson's thought later on with with fresh eyes, with a new perspective. You're definitely I think you're just comparing the different anxieties you have to point out similarities um, in how your anxiety works as a whole. Mm -hmm. Um, So that goes along. So when I was going through my health anxiety a lot, I would go and I would do my thought records and then I would do those questions. So when I would have an intrusive thought, for example, I would go through those questions in order. And it sounds silly, but when you go through them, it makes you feel a lot better because it's helping you to identify that this is anxiety instead of a real feared situation. So you're just looking at it from a different perspective. Looking at it from a different perspective, you have a visual representation of what's going on. I think that's a big thing because with anxiety, you have so many thoughts about, you know, whatever the feared event is or the stimuli or whatever it may be. You have a lot of racing thoughts, a lot of worrying, a lot of rumination, perhaps, um, which can really increase the anxiety. It's all connected, right? So when you put it on a piece of paper, at least just so you can see it visually and you can see step by step, I went from this to this to this, it really puts things into perspective, I think, for people. And that's yeah. why thought are so, uh, or even just journaling, why, they're, why it's so effective. I think, and my research shows that it's so effective for at least being coming for becoming more aware. Yeah, and I mean, if anything, even if you don't feel like you're a big journaler or journaler, I'm not pronouncing that right. But if anything, it's helping you express your emotions, which is unraveling them a little bit. It's helping you kind of map them out and get yeah. a better grip on what's going on. Like it doesn't feel like such a clump in your head. Mm-hmm. Um, it helps that, you sort that out for sure. Yeah, that clump can be overwhelming, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we've talked about that a little bit more. Did, did you want to sort of go into just the psychology, actually, what you've learned, at least? Um, we did talk about our disclaimer, um, but just what you've learned about the science behind uh, safety behaviors. Mm-hmm. So really, just to start off is, so with anxiety, uh, let's say severe anxiety, whether it's been formally diagnosed or not, there's it's characterized by an extreme fear of a negative event happening, whatever that may be, 
person. Um, and then it's also characterized by behaviors that serve to either escape, avoid, or to manage that situation. Um, but those behaviors typically are not um, adaptive um, long-term. Yeah. And so what happens is, is that there is usually a trigger. Um, trigger could be, uh, you know, being in a social situation. Trigger could be uncertainty. Trigger could be, I have a dentist appointment I have to go to, whatever it may be for the person. Um, and so what happens is because there's an overestimation of threat or of this fear, the person typically or the anxious person will then draw a conclusion, as we said before, that's a bit more catastrophic, it's extreme, um, that the worst case scenario is something bad is going to happen to me, um, could be for my health, it could be that someone's going to judge me, it could be that um, I, I won't be able to cope with the uncertainty and then something yeah. is going to happen, you know, it could be anything like that, because uh, I'm trying to keep this more broad. Um, so you have that catastrophic conclusion and you also have the underestimation of your ability to cope. So I think that I will not be able to drive without my scarf. I will, yeah. will I won't be able to get through that presentation without doing blank, whatever it may be. Um, and so because you have that, that's kind of the mindset that you have, you draw the conclusion you then have the arousal, so you have the increased heart rate, you have these sweaty palms, maybe you have the tightening of the throat. I've had that before. Um, it could be any other physical sensation that you have. But also the interesting thing is your internal triggers could also make things worse for you. So it's not necessarily what's in your environment that will trigger the anxiety. It could also be what you're physically feeling. Um, anyhow, so there's that. And then what happens is I need to do something to manage this, what I'm feeling and what I'm thinking. And yeah. so this is where the safety behaviors or the coping behaviors come into the picture, because I think that if I worry or if I re you know, seek reassurance, if I wear the scarf, hold the water bottle, wear the turtleneck, whatever it may be for you personally, yeah. then I'll be able to manage my anxiety. And so what happens is that you do that behavior and it temporarily reduces the anxiety, um, which helps you short term and you feel good after but long term what that actually does is it reinforces that belief of that feared event is going to happen it reinforces that thought or belief that if I don't do x y and z this bad thing is going to happen and so it just perpetuates the cycle um, and so what happens is you do the behavior reinforces the belief and then that belief never goes unchallenged because you think oh I managed that situation because I did blank Right. And so it just goes on challenging, keep doing it over and over and it just becomes a habit. So it's all like a cycle. Yeah. Actually, yeah. I have an example with health anxiety that Perfect. I forgot about before. So when my anxiety first started, if you are familiar with my account, you probably know this. If not, uh, one of my biggest anxieties was um, food fears. So I thought that I was going to have allergies to everything. So mm -hmm. my anxiety started after I had an allergic reaction and then I just it, it started from there and mm -hmm. so for a couple of years after like at least one year I didn't eat any food besides like carrots I didn't have anything I, for one I wasn't feeding my brain which was another reason why my anxiety was probably so increased um but another thing is I slowly had to start challenging this and before I didn't challenge it at all now I do but I used to feel like if I was eating food with somebody around me then mm -hmm then if I was just by myself, I felt like if I was by myself, I was going to have an allergic reaction and mm -hmm. that wasn't rational. 
if I'm understanding correctly, if you, um, you know, only ate carrots or only ate certain foods, then you wouldn't have that same reaction that you had before. So in a way you're preventing that feared event from happening, which helps you temporarily or short term. But then when you think about it long term, there's there's a couple of things like you said you're not getting the nutrients that you need mm-hmm. for your health your physical mental health um you're relying on a, a behavior that is um not serving a, 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 a or like a necessarily an adaptive purpose for you um it's like it's almost like a band-aid solution I kind of think of safety behaviors almost like a band-aid solution it is it just like helps a band-aid you get- solution yeah and yeah, I just yeah with my allergy fears it was completely a band-aid solution because I felt like I was avoiding having an allergic reaction. I wasn't yeah. allergic to anything, but I was doing different things to try and cope with eating. And mm-hmm. this lasted so much longer than it needed to. Eventually I did slow exposure until I could eat completely normal again. But before, like if I was trying to eat an egg, for example, I mm-hmm. felt like if I washed dishes and stuff, then I wouldn't, I would avoid cross-contamination of other foods I was afraid of like peanut butter, for example. Yeah. And I felt like if I was around people, then I wouldn't have an allergic reaction. And if I was by myself, I would have an allergic reaction in doing that. Um, that was the safety behavior was being around somebody. Um, and it wasn't benefiting me because that was reinforcing my anxiety by telling myself that I'm only safe if I eat food around other people. And mm-hmm. it wasn't, it was a band-aid solution because it wasn't long-term helping to teach my brain that it's a safe situation, no matter what, that I'm not allergic to the food. Um, but with that, um, avoiding certain foods, I used to look at different ingredients and I wouldn't eat anything that was what I was afraid of. For example, I would only eat like five ingredients to start. And by doing that, that was my safety behavior, but I felt like I was protecting myself. I felt like I was stopping myself from having an allergic reaction, but in reality, that was the band-aid because I wasn't allergic at all in long-term. The long-term actual fix was teaching myself and exposing myself to that so that I could not reinforce my anxiety. So I could teach myself that it's not a fearful situation, that this is a false alarm, that there's nothing to be afraid of. Right. And then I think like even just in terms of other forms of anxiety for like social anxiety, for example, if you're avoiding those situations or you're, um, you know, not, you're avoiding those social situations, what you're doing is temporarily, yes, you are reducing or managing your anxiety, but you're missing out on opportunities for social connection, for, you know, relationships, mm-hmm. or perhaps you could be missing out on a job opportunity That's true. Um, or a, you know, student, I don't know, practicum placement, just something specific. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of um, more generalized anxiety, I think of like, if you're you know, seeking reassurance a lot, or you're worrying a lot about something, um, or you're having to even like something, for example, like small, like if you're doing like a paper, if you're a student and you have to do all this research or all this stuff just to get it right. Um, what you're, yes, you're managing your anxiety short term, but then you're spending a lot of time and energy doing the research, or you're spending a lot of time asking, you know, people are Googling, you know, is this the right thing? Yeah. Yeah, Google's a big one. Um, so just to try to apply what maybe the not so good parts are in other forms of anxiety besides health anxiety. Um, it, mm-hmm. it really the the take-home message really what we're sending here is that short term it's it's okay, it's helping you, but long term it's it's not serving you. It's not, yeah, because short term, if I'm really going to if I'm gonna tell myself, okay, I'm gonna eat this egg, but I'm gonna eat it with my mom in the room then that's training my brain that I protected myself, that I was safe. When in reality, I want to be challenging that 
and teaching myself that it's safe if she's not in the room. So it's really reinforcing my anxiety in the sense that that's what I'm going to do next time. If that's what worked for me, if that's what like had me eating food, um, then that's what I'm going to do next time. And then, then I'm not going to be able to find myself eating food without being fearful and without being afraid because I'm not going to be challenging that. Exactly. And it also makes me wonder, like, what if there are situations where your your friend or mom or trusted object, whatever may be, is not available to you? And that's true. That was another one for me because I used to work at a grocery store. And I remember I would go an eight hour shift without eating food, which was really negatively impacting me because I was alone in the break room. Mm-hmm. And so if there was a shift where nobody was, you know, across the room for me, even if there was a stranger um, that I would eat by myself or I wouldn't eat by myself. Sorry. Um, and so that's really negatively impacting you because I'm not going to eat if somebody else is in the room, I have a huge reliance on somebody else, mm-hmm. um, which is a part of that bandaid. And what if they're not there? What if my mom needs to go to work that day? Then that's, then I don't have that comfort zone on my own to be able to challenge those fears. Yeah. Um, so it's important to, this is actually a good segue into talking about what can we do to overcome this? Mm-hmm. So really what you want to do is you, at least just what the research shows is that you want to reverse the cycle. So just to kind of review, you have the trigger, you have the, you know, appraisal or the um, yeah. expectation that something bad is really going to happen, whatever that may be for you. Then you have the, um, you know, the physical arousal, the, the thoughts, all of that kind of stuff. Then you have the behavior to cope. And then it just doesn't challenge anything and it just continues going in a circle. So you want to reverse that circle. You want to modify that. Um, So one thing, at least specifically, since we're focusing on safety behaviors Mm -hmm. is um, in CBT, at least in particular, um, is, and you've mentioned this a little bit before too, with with your own personal experience with therapy is exposure. Really being and exposure was mainly what I did with that. Yeah. So just in terms of the exposure part, you do what's called graded exposure to the feared situation. So how that works is you're um, in, in small increments, you're working your way up to that feared situation um, yeah. and you're exposing yourself, as I said, in little increments and then becoming used to or getting used to what that feels like and to kind of get out of your comfort zone, but not too much that it pushes you in. It's like a so those baby steps, right? Baby steps. Baby steps are so important. Um, and it, the, the steps might be different for everybody. Um, it might be similar for some people, just kind of like standardized way yeah. to do it. Um, but yeah, so they're presented in different levels of difficulties, depending on what that works for you. Um, and so what happens is you're basically what the benefits are is that you're increasing your confidence to tolerate that situation. You're becoming uh, more tolerable of the physical sensations that come with the anxiety. So you're kind of proving yourself that you can cope with that instead of underestimating your coping abilities. Proving yourself. So in another word, in other ways of saying that is that you're reappraising or changing your thoughts about that situation, which means that, oh, hey, I can handle this. I can cope with whatever it may be. Oh, look, I can do it. You know, that's the thing. It increases your confidence, And another thing is, it's just, it provides you, exposure provides you with the opportunity to confront that fear, whatever that may be for you in baby steps. So what they do in CBT, um, I'm not sure if this is what you did, is you kind of create a step ladder. Um, So first you kind of think about, okay, this is my feared situation. How can I turn that into a goal I want to work towards? Um, So for example, that could be... um, actually do have an example yeah perfect yeah I remember with the food exposure I with allergies I'm not going to talk about it just in case I don't want to trigger anybody who has the same anxiety 
But what I would do Mm -hmm. is I would be in the same room as the food and I would smell it. And then I would wait half an hour and then I'd put it on my arm and I wait half an hour. And then I put it on my tongue and I'd wait half an hour until I was gradually um, exposing myself to both the food and my fear about it. So I was slowly proving to myself that nothing really is potentially going to happen here. Um, and I think a big thing to just add on top of what you were saying is consistency. So I think small steps and consistency is more important than huge steps that are inconsistent. Um, you might feel like you're not having a lot of progress because your goals are so small, but they're not, it's those little goals that add up and they really change things for you. Because if you're going to challenge your anxiety once a year, um, with this big grand gesture, it's probably not going to stick and help you as much as really consistently, really consistently um, working on those small goals and kind of working on uh, challenging your fear and breaking that cycle that we're talking about, that reinforcing cycle. Exactly. So that's why you really want to make your goals like specific. You want to make them measurable. You want to make them realistic for you. Um, Because the biggest thing is like, you want to challenge yourself, but you don't want to challenge yourself too much. You don't want to, right? So also coming to terms with the fact that, you know what, this is going to take me a while maybe to get to where I want to go. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. I think that's a big thing, just in general, whatever you're trying to work towards in your life is that it's, you, you, it's okay to take your time getting there. You, you know, everything happens for a reason. You're going to get there eventually. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a whole nother thing that we can, it's a whole nother conversation you talk about is like setbacks and all that. Yeah. Those are okay too. But just in terms of turning this, the feared situation into a goal, making sure they're measurable, realistic, attainable. Um, and and uh, like you said, it sounded like it was very like structured what you did. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're, setting a goal that's really unrealistic for yourself, then that's a too, too big, too unrealistic. You're going to be training your brain that you can't do it. And you want to be doing the opposite of that. You want to be teaching yourself that you are able to cope with these situations. But if Mm -hmm. you're doing something that's like, instead of skipping step one to seven, and you're just doing number nine, because you just want to get there, you're tired of it. I understand that as well. Then that's just not going to stick as well, because that's going to be really, it might be really hard for you. And then you might be really upset. You might be unmotivated and finding motivation to challenge your anxiety in the first place is really, really difficult. Exactly. Recommends for you, but yeah, no, the only reason I brought that up was because, uh, so one, yes, you you need to do what works for you personally, Mm -hmm. you and therapist or or whatnot. Um, but another thing to make it even more concrete, and this is why I like CBT so much. It's very structured and concrete. Um, it helps you see the patterns and work through who you are as a person. Yeah. So kind of how it works is if you have a step ladder of your goal or of your like mini little goals and getting up to a bigger one, yeah. if you do the first situation, you rate your anxiety on a scale of like one to 10, one to mm-hmm. 100, that sort of thing. And the whole um, strategy behind it is you work with the least anxiety provoking situation okay. your way up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you give yourself a rating um, and then you would do the next goal or the next thing on your ladder and then give yourself a rating as well. How am I feeling after? Yeah. And so, so what that's really doing, sorry, just what that's really doing is you're, you're seeing a visual representation of as you go up and do things or you're being exposed more, mm-hmm. your anxiety is, it should be actually going down as you work your way up, if that makes sense. It does. Um, yeah. So you see that you're actually, oh, I can do all these things. And my anxiety actually isn't as bad as I maybe had thought it was, which again, increases the confidence, increases the motivation, all of that stuff. It, it really, it's like a domino effect. Yeah. And I just think that's what I meant earlier with the experience piece is that you might like doing thought records forever, but you might get to the point in your anxiety where you understand them and you're kind of just mentally doing thought records, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. And I yeah. think that's what I was kind of applying to my situation because 
even though I wasn't like writing down like level one, level two, or this is affecting me this much, I still started with the least anxiety provoking thing by smelling it and then working my way up to the hardest thing, which was eating it. But by that point, I was already basically convinced that I wasn't allergic to it because I was going through all that exposure and it made it a lot easier um, than just throwing myself in there and saying, okay, try it, have a panic attack, you know, um, yeah, throwing yourself into a situation can sometimes just really scare you and make you not want to do that again. And you Mm -hmm. want to keep yourself consistent and motivated. Yeah. And something that just a quick thought that I had with, so within that cycle of anxiety, it sounds like, you know, you had the trigger or or like, you know, the the food was your fear. Um, stimuli let's say your situation mm-hmm. um and you had a more adaptive response eventually as you got uh, higher up in the ladder and what you did is that you had the experience of coping with that feared situation and you realize that oh I I can handle this and that's not so bad okay I can handle more let's you know bring <laughs> on more for yeah, me. I mean if you're giving um, yourself a little bit more at a time it's going to feel manageable Exactly. And then you're challenging, here's where like the thought stuff comes in, you're challenging the validity of that old belief of I'm allergic to the egg or I'm allergic to whatever. Um, You're challenging that and then you're you're developing more realistic beliefs or or more adaptive, helpful beliefs for yourself. Mm -hmm. And that breaks the cycle. It really, and eventually, like you said, consistency and practice, um, it, it eventually breaks that cycle of anxiety for you. I think something important to mention is when I was going through my anxiety before I even saw a therapist, um, I just kind of hoped it was going to kind of go away on its own. Mm -hmm. And I think a big piece I know as frustrating as it is, I'm going to say most of the time you're going to have to have to face your fears to get over that stuff. Um, Exactly. I lost, I lost my train of thought. No, but that's okay. Cause it, it just kind of got me going is that the only way that you were going to, let's say, overcome or manage your anxiety yes. about whatever form it may be, health, social, generalized, you could even be, you know, OCD related anxiety mm-hmm. have to, con- or phobias. That's a big one too. Um, you have to confront the fear in a way that's strategic and that is manageable for you. And see, the nice thing about this stuff that we're talking is about it, at least in my personal opinion, you don't need a therapist necessarily to do this. If you want to do baby steps yeah, to work on different things in your life that you yeah. feel that you need to work on, that's an active choice that you're going to make as a person to want to constantly have that growth and work on yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't always necessarily mean that there's a problem or that yeah, there's something wrong with you yeah. or anything like that. Yeah. It might just be you wanting to feel more comfortable in a social situation or you wanting to feel comfortable in the grocery store. Because if you can sit there and visualize what would it feel like for me to be able to go into a grocery store and feel not, not have that anxiety feeling, to feel comfortable, um, then that's something that you could even do to kind of motivate yourself to work towards that goal this is a good place to kind of wrap it up honestly I feel like we've been talking for a long time I know it's so nice to talk to you I know um so we're gonna say our thank yous um this was a really exciting uh, opportunity for me because I like learning more you have a lot of education and I like learning about the scientific side of it uh when I asked Montana to be on my podcast I was not expecting the amount of work that she put into the podcast. I looked at my Google document one day and there's like 10 pages there. And I honestly, I was excited about it because I was like, this girl's taking it serious. Uh, there's a lot of great information that we can help people with, um, with this. Um, so I thank you for being on my podcast. Is there anything that you want to say just before we wrap it up and before we go? 
Yeah, I think just for first off, like, just thanks so much for having me on here. It's just really exciting. This is a new experience for me. Um, and another and experience that you're getting out of your comfort zone, right? Exactly. The next one will be easier. Exactly. Practice makes perfect, yeah. right? There's a reason why that's so. <laughs> yeah. Um, but just even for people out there who are listening or watching or whatever, um, is just to push yourself out of your comfort zone, kind of is my takeaway, but also educate yourself and really be informed of, you know, what resources are out there for you specifically for your mental health challenge or for your, you know, whatever it may be for you personally. Um, because I, I find that the more educated and informed you are, the better understanding you have, the better awareness, especially the better understanding you're going to have of other people too, and which is a whole other topic. Yeah, which, yeah, exactly. Then you can be emotionally supportive to somebody else struggling with a mental mm-hmm. health challenge, right? Like it's a whole list of benefits and we go on and on about that. Yeah. Um, but really just to take care of yourself. Don't be hard on yourself. Mm-hmm. Everything's going to take time. Progress is a very slow um, process, but it ends up being very beneficial for you. Um, and the biggest thing is have a strong support system with or like surrounding you. Surround yourself with people who really are, you know, like your cheerleaders on the side, you know, yeah. like a football game, that sort of thing, whether it's friends, family, even just a social community. I think. Yeah. I was going to say, even if you don't have that, just choosing to have that positive environment, even online um, rather than a negative one is really, really important. Exactly. I find that since I started this page, I've just met and seen so many yeah. wonderful people who are also mental health advocates. And I'm like, it's a whole world out there of people. Oh, yeah similar interests or you know similar values and all that and just to be a part of that for me personally that already you know nurtures my mental health because I'm seeing all this great content and I feel like you're a part of something bigger I think exactly like this movement if you want to call it yeah (laughs) that sort of thing but yeah so just you know thanks so much for this this was so great and I really hope that people benefited from this um and and just go out there and be yourself be kind to So goodbye, everybody. And we hope that you really enjoyed this. We worked really hard on it. So we hope that Mm -hmm. you enjoy it. Yeah. Bye.